0: All right, today we've got Joanna Freitas. Joanna, thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate it.
1: My pleasure. Thank you for asking me.
0: Uh, like like we like we do, uh, standard first question. Refresh our memory. What were you doing before INSEAD? And what have you been up to for the last 20 years?
1: Uh, before INSEAD, I was working for McKinsey just for a couple of years. I did two years as an analyst. And I was really exhausted at the end of those two years. They were kind of... Uh, ground me to to a powder of long uh, days and a lot of stress. And then it was part of the McKinsey career, you had to um, take an MBA from a reputable school. Um, And so I went to INSEAD. And then
0: Wait, hold on. This, this this is this is this is interesting. This is this is news to me. So, if if you're presumably you were an analyst, I'm not sure what what the, what the term is. Yes, you, they force you to go to business school. You can't just well, stick around wanna, McKinsey. In.
1: If you wanted to progress, I think they've changed that now. But you do two years as an analyst, and then you do an MBA, and then you become an associate, which is the next level. And that was. Just how it had to be. You had no real alternative to that. So I remember we had one uh, evening during a training where we had two people, two older uh, McKinsey people, and they were talking about their experiences uh, in their MBAs to help us choose, right? And one of them was from Harvard, and he talked about how uh, hard he'd studied and how much he'd learned, and etc. And there was another one from INSEAD and he talked about these massive parties in the forest, and I thought. That's what I'm going to go to, because the other one seemed really boring. Um, So to me, when I arrived at INSEAD, it was really like a holiday. I was like, I finally, I could relax and just enjoy the experience. Um, And it was a sort of a breath of fresh air into what had been a really intense two years. Um, And then afterwards, uh, I went back to McKinsey. Um, for well, but
0: although you didn't didn't you go to Singapore? So you you sort of you you, you
1: yes were intrigued in, by these in, mass I parties. I started. I started in Singapore, but then I uh-huh. um, in the first four months, P one and P two, and then I moved to okay, okay, That was a mistake because I came in January, where everything all the fun people had gone to Singapore and was dark <laughs> and cold. But then it picked up in in the spring uh, after Insiad. So I went back to McKinsey. Um, and, um, I went back to Lisbon, but then I oh, the went- way, you,
0: you just offended about 200 people th- th- those that didn't go to Singapore and stayed in Fontaloupe, but, but go, go on.
1: <laughs> That's right. There were, there were exceptions. There were exceptions. <laughs> uh, and then I went to the London office of, of McKinsey and then, uh, I returned to Lisbon and between one thing and the other, I asked for a six month sabbatical. And I went to do some volunteering work in Mozambique. Um, so so how,
0: how long did you do London McKinsey? And then how long were you back, back? you know, McKinsey, Portugal?
1: And London was just six months. Uh, and then the rest of the time I was I was in Portugal. I also did like a three-month gig in Rio. It was my last project. It was, uh, I think, uh, the, high, the high point of my career McKinsey was ending in, in, in the Rio office, which was just a lot of fun. Um. And so, after coming back and doing that volunteering gig was just uh, an adventure and uh, really fun actually being on what exactly
0: were you doing when you volunteering?
1: I was uh, collaborating with a with an NGO that was actually uh, started by an ex McKinsey, and the purpose was to help the private sector in these developing economies because uh, in countries like Mozambique and many others uh, in Africa, for example, you have Um, we have the state that is uh, using a lot of international aid to provide uh, services, public services. And then you have um, um, sort of agriculture that people just um, do for their own families. And you don't have a lot of private enterprise, of actual enterprise that is uh, creating jobs and providing opportunities for for, uh, people in the country. So it was to help... Um, business making and, and the private enterprise. And my job there was to create a tourism attraction plan for uh, this island uh, that we were in. And uh, in, in, it was the first capital of the country and has a beautiful um, architectural heritage and it's surrounded by blue waters and um, green forests. And But it has a lot of difficulties because of sanitation and lack of infrastructure. And so how we could um, make it a more interesting uh, tourism destination. Um, so it was it was kind of a surreal experience because this island had, you know, these colonial buildings and, and very beautiful um, palaces and uh, hospitals, but they had like trees growing in the... In the in the roof and families there, so it was- no offense,
0: but this is sounding like a complete boondoggle. Uh, but but uh, <laughs> la, la, la. yeah, yeah, it was it was
1: yeah, it was a it was a fun thing. I don't know that we did anything actually useful. Uh, by doubt, but we we did try. Uh, we I think we did a little thing, which was to help. There was some legislation about ownership of, of buildings and how to make it easier for those to be. Um, held by nationals and used into small hotels and restaurants and things like that. There we
0: go. All right. So then you're, you you go back to to Portugal.
1: So then I come back, and you know after that experience, uh, I I just couldn't really uh, care so much about maximizing shareholder value anymore. It was difficult to work that hard at McKinsey for something that wasn't uh, didn't feel very important to me. And so I was looking for uh, an opportunity to, you know, in my little uh, condition to contribute to society in a way or other. And I guess today I would have found that in McKinsey because McKinsey then developed a public sector practice and there's areas that contribute to social investments, etc. But at the time I didn't really found that. So I left and I decided to go work for the government. And jo- so I joined the cabinet of the Secretary of State for Treasury and Finance in Portugal.
0: What what, what year would this have been when you start working for the government? Two
1: thousand and eight. Okay. Maybe two thousand and se- end of two thousand and
0: seven. Uh-huh. So it's only, you know, five-ish years after you finish and see so yeah, you're 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 not going. Yes. Okay.
1: Yes. Uh and <laughs> it was a bit like my military service, you know. I didn't go I didn't get to military <laughs> service, but it was a way that I felt I was doing something. A little bit to to contribute to to public to public good, you know also the country had invested in me. I always studied in public schools throughout um, high school and university, and I thought you know i 've benefited from the social infra- infrastructure, so I want to do something also to to contribute and It was really fascinating and i I would advise anyone if you have the opportunity to work in government for a while because just seeing how Decisions are made and now the national budget is put together and the impact of the the news and the press on uh, the the political agenda. It was really a learning experience to me. I didn't really have an ambition to be a politician, but it was just an experience that um, I wanted to have. I remember at the time, um, both my parents were quite disappointed with this career choice because... uh, (laughs) My father thought, you're in McKinsey, everything is going well, you're going to make partner, what are you doing? And my mom thought, she said to me, when are you going to have a quiet job and have a family? Which was, this thing was neither, right? It was badly paid and it was quite intense and, and stressful.
0: What exactly were you doing for this department?
1: So I was, um, uh, I worked representing the interests of the state on the financial side with the number of state-owned companies. So uh, the airports, um, the national airline, the bank, Portugal's largest bank, uh, the railways, uh, the metros. Uh, I also worked representing the state in concessions. So you have to, for example, uh, when you're building infrastructure and you're attributing those contracts to um, to bidders to to build infrastructure, so that kind of thing. But actually, what happened was uh, the 2008 financial crisis hit, and then that took over the whole agenda. And um, basically, we were just concentrated in avoiding a bank run. And yeah, it was uh, it was a
0: little scary for a while in Portugal, right? There were some, it was
1: very scary. I remember distinctively when Lehman Brothers went down, and all the stock exchange, you know, exploded, and the interest rates shot up and uh it was just it was a bit frightening but at the same time it was very interesting to be there at that time because you know I was working directly with uh writing up legislation to give banks um government guarantees so they can finance themselves and uh we nationalized a small bank because it was fragile and there was fears that it would create uh, uh an effect, a ripple effect on the banking system. So the response to the financial crisis and helping aiding banks deal with that uh, really became the center of of my little job as a as a as an advisor to the secretary of state.
0: You got a little more than you bargained for.
1: <laughs> Absolutely.
0: And how um, long did you that for?
1: So I did that for two years, and then the the mandate ended, and I didn't want to um, do any more sort of political work. Uh, and so after that, uh, I went to work for a ground handling company, which is, you know, the company that does the check-in and puts the bags in and out of aeroplanes. Um, and I was COO for, for that company. This, this is a private
0: company. This, this is not government-owned all. It was state-owned.
1: Just- it was owned by the airports that at the time were still uh, state-owned. Okay. Uh, and that's how the opportunity arise because i uh I had had dealings with them in my previous role um and so that was my first management position so i was it was very scary because i didn't i never had any management experience and I knew nothing about the industry and suddenly you know I was in charge of operations of uh, i don't know one thousand eight hundred people, four airports. And it was an operational turnaround uh and uh you know highly unionized workforce and they had been losing money for 10 ever since they existed for 10 years, and my remit was okay, we need to stop the hemorrhage and make this make money. And and uh, and
0: pardon, pardon the language, but you know, some young lady comes in and is, is telling me. Uh-huh.
1: Yeah, so I was terrified. I sort of thought at that time, I can't be COO of a company sitting in an in a office in Lisbon. So I spent a lot of time, I spent two days a week in each airport, Porto, Lisbon, Faro and Funchal, and then went back to the beginning. And I spent a lot of time with the frontline teams, you know, in the airside and sitting in with the shift meeting. And Did you ever climb up underneath
0: the airplane and, and load some bags in yourself? awesome
1: yeah well i was there i was there i was there and i was trying to learn and gain credibility and understand what i was getting myself into uh so but it was a lot of fun because i had a lot of freedom and i sort of dream up one thing in the morning and do it in the afternoon there wasn't a lot of layers of decision to go there was no layers of decision to go through um and it's sort of ended up well, I guess, because the first year we sort of broke even, and the second year we had a, a, a marginal um, profit. And But the, more, the most fun I've had was with the frontline workers because um, they were really good. If you're a mechanic, the best job you can have is in an airport. And so we had people who were really excited about their jobs and proud and interested. Uh, and so the frontline workers were very uh, open to new ideas and, uh, you know, redesigning the processes and reorganizing the teams for better productivity, etc. So they were really open to this, and and I had um, I had a lot of fun just inventing inventing how to how to do this without much um, training or coaching from from anyone. Oh, um,
0: cool. So what, what was next?
1: So what happened was, so that was going well, but I I was a uh, a a public manager because the company was state-owned and portugal was in a financial disarray and the government had decided that year there would be no bonuses for state managers which was okay you know because sometimes bonuses are variable even though your individual company is doing well but the shareholder which is the state had no money but then they also started doing salary cuts uh and so by the third salary cut i thought all right i've i've my contribution here. (laughs) And so I looked to something else. And uh, so through a headhunter, I went to something completely different. I went to work as a CFO of a real estate company. What year is this? This must be 2012, 20, yeah, something like that, 2013. Um, and so there, my role, so we, I started at the bottom of the cycle, so prices were low, there weren't a lot of transactions, and there was a bunch of legacy built uh, uh, apartments and residential buildings, etc., that needed to be dealt with, and some sort of bad dealings with um, construction companies that were losing money and, you know, a lot of problems. And so my remit there was to kind of define the strategy to invest on the next, on when, when when the cycle become better, because in real estate, you really make the profitability of the project when you buy much more than when you sell. So the plot of land, the, the, the location defines the product, and then the price you pay is a big part of the economics of, of, uh, of the product. And so we decided to go for... Um, center of Lisbon residential luxury, um, products that ended up being, uh, quite successful because of all the, um, the golden visas and all the international, um, residents that would come and, and, and subsequent years decide to come to Lisbon. And there was a market that, um, really started at that time and, and went very well, but then um, the parent company of this real estate which was a, a financial group with a bank went, bank went spectacularly bankrupt with a fraud of its CEO and so um, you know luckily neither myself nor the the company I was in had any dealings with that but when your parent company goes bankrupt in a very public way you can't really do any business you can't borrow money from anyone and no one will buy uh, an apartment from you because you don't they don't know if you're going to finish the apartment and so mm-hmm. the last six months for me were more just learning to deal with that you know lawyers and all sorts of things and also finding a new uh, shareholder for that for that company because um, I didn't want to leave immediately I thought I should find a, a future for that team because we had good People, a good set of assets. There was nothing wrong with the company, uh, and so I, with with great difficulty, because at that point everyone is just wondering if they're gonna be, uh, you know, implicated in some <laughs> 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 in some investigation. But we managed to get two uh, binding offers: one from Portuguese investors and another one from a fund in London from Cerberus. Uh, but the decision maker at that point was a liquidation uh, judge in Luxembourg, you know, from the parent company. And he thought the the offers weren't good enough and it didn't take them. So the company was not uh, sold. And at that point I I left because I thought there's, you know, there's nothing else I can do that I can do here. And then, you know, I left without any plans. I spent a couple of, months just doing nothing and I still worked for, uh, so the, the group was then interventioned by the Bank of Portugal and I still worked as a freelance for them because they were looking at their uh, real estate portfolio. And I thought, okay, next, my next thing, I want something very safe, very predictable I don't want to wake up in the middle of the night wondering how I'm going to pay salaries and tax. <laughs> and so uh, I went to work for a very, very, very stable company, which is a fully regulated uh, grid operator. What will is this. This must have been 13, 14, 15, something like that. Uh and so I, I uh went to work for the grid operator in Portugal, completely different atmosphere. Um but it had it it made me discover the world of energy and uh which I really uh enjoyed and I, I'm still enjoying very much, and to stumble upon a very interesting moment in energy because energy had been sort of the same for many decades and now is going through this massive shift moving away from fossil fuels into renewables and all the social change and the industrial change that goes with that. So I was very interested in that. Um, and my role was ahead head of planning and control. And that was only, you know, a small part of what was going on. And I felt that I wanted to learn more uh, about the different issues, um, the technology side, the regulation side, the... Uh, sort of stakeholder management and those issues, I didn't come across them in my day to day. And so I thought, what can I do to get to know the people that are operating this massive change and all the different issues that are happening right now in in Europe where I am? So I decided to make a podcast, funnily enough. And uh, so (laughs) I partnered with a research center um, called the Florence School of Regulation, and um, I decided to interview different people, so different perspectives on the energy transition. So from the Energy Commission in, Commissioner in Europe to CEOs of um, energy companies to um, people from Greenpeace, consumer rights representatives, uh, union leaders, just people who are being impacted by this change and what there's their viewpoint uh, on on the different aspects of the energy transition. You,
0: you just may be really self conscious now. I feel like I'm being judged but, but for your. I've got a real pro I'm talking to is who's who's judging the the uh, amateurish uh, amateur <laughs> no, nature no, no, of, no, of what, no, I'm, what I'm doing. So so you're, you're you're working for this this. It sounds like this company just operates the public electric grid, right? They're, they're, they're... It's fully,
1: fully private. Actually, it's uh-huh. it's a fully regulated in the sense that you know its revenues and its the parameters of quality are completely set by the regulator, but uh, shareholders are entirely private and yeah they have to yeah manage it, build new lines when they're required and just mm-hmm. uh, manage the system.
0: And you're still with them, or or you? No.
1: You, you... So okay. uh, one of the interviews was with the CEO in the podcast was the CEO of a Portuguese headquartered global energy company. Uh, And then after the interview, he sort of asked me, so what, what, you know, who are you and what do you do and what's your experience? And long story short, then this is how I got this job I'm in right now. Uh, (laughs) So it was Uh, So I'm now with uh, EDP. EDP is, it used to be the the state-owned national energy company, but then some 15 years ago it became private and it's now um, 13,000 people in 29 countries from Singapore to the U.S. Uh, It's number four in wind uh, globally and it has grids. It has uh, power generation and retail. Um, but it's now a much more um, integrated and international company than people uh, would remember. And I work on uh, one of the business units, uh, which is power generation Portugal and Spain. So basically, power plants. Um, and there, I look after uh, digital transformation, uh, innovation, business development, and sustainability.
0: Specifically, in the in the Iberian Peninsula. Yeah. Uh-huh. Which is probably their headquarters, right?
1: Yeah, headquartered in in Lisbon. Mm-hmm. So now, what what,
0: what this is? What business does a Portuguese energy company have going, you know, to dozens of different countries? Did you did you privatize a lot earlier than everybody else, so you were kind of unshackled and able to get really entrepreneurial in these other places and build these wind farms or whatnot? Kind of well, that's really interesting. What 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 happened there?
1: Um. Well, at some point, uh, the the. The, the previous leadership, the CEO that, that hired me, I guess, made a massive bet into, uh, and this is 15 years ago when renewables were just a curiosity and no one knew if this, this was going to be successful because the prices were still uh, relatively high um, and there was a lot of uncertainty. And he uh, decided that growing into renewables internationally was the way forward. Um, and so there was a, there were a couple of important, um, acquisitions, one in Spain and then one in the U S that launched this, uh, international businesses. And then it just, the world was going through a massive, uh, growth for, for wind and sun, but mostly wind. There was more of a mature technology where prices had gone down and, and wind turbines and, and there were a lot of, um, tenders being launched. And so, just having that experience and having the engineering knowledge and the, the regulatory knowledge to understand what's a good opportunity when our price is good, uh, just became a replicable uh, business model, and and that's where the the growth uh, became. It's not unheard of. Um, uh, companies like Nl and Iberdrola, so from Italy and Spain respectively, have also became have also become kind of worldwide energy companies uh, growing a lot, also in Latin America and in, in the US as well, and countries in several countries in Europe. So this is a movement that has happened in, in South of Europe, if you will, uh, companies that used to be the sort of the national uh, energy company, just going abroad and, and growing and riding the wave of, of the renewables um, expansion.
0: That's really cool, that's really cool. That's, that's, that, that makes a lot of sense. Um, we're, we're running super long. Uh, I've got to skip a, a number of Oh, the I'm sorry. I just, I just re-
1: went re- on, and on. No, no, no,
0: no. Right. This, this has been super interesting. Uh, I'm, I'm going to ask, what I think kind of the most important one. Um, is there anything that, that, that those of us in, in the community, probably the only the, the five or 10 people who even listen to this thing, um, can do to, to help you and vice versa? What, what sort of things can you do to help, help the community? Uh, well, uh,
1: there's one thing that I, um, i like to contribute as whenever possible which is about um improving gender balance in business leadership and in and, and specifically you know making sure there's more representation of women in in senior roles and so if um if you're look if you need any contribution on that topic my answer is always yes very happy to uh participate in any form there's usually initiatives there's many things being being done happy to do that in terms of me, um, so I've I love the INSEAD family, and I've actually been um, collaborating with uh, the Energy Club from the Alumni Association, trying to get uh, business leaders more aware of the importance of decarbonizing their um, their activities and being aware of how their business decisions can uh, have a positive impact on climate action. And uh, we're considering doing a number of webinars on the topic. So if you want to join us uh on this topic on uh, energy decarbonization or climate action uh let me know
0: wonderful joanna thank you so so much been really uh, I-, I learned a lot
1: thank you it's been a pleasure
0: bye